Our Old Testament reading is from Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its furthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Our sermon text is from Acts 9, 10 10 through 19. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call your name. But the Lord said to him, go, For he is chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight And be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. The word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, in your kindness and your mercy, we ask that you would do Lord, for the fifth time in 2023 and for more than 300 times since the beginning of our church, we ask that you, by the power of your spirit, would shine light on these words that are in your word. Would you shine light on the words that I've prepared? Would you be so kind and gracious to then use these words to great effect in our hearts and in our souls? And Lord, may they stir up in us great hope in our Lord Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I have three words for you tonight that will form the basic shape of this sermon. The first word is the word sight. The second word is the word suffering. And the third word is the word 
surpassing. So sight, suffering, and surpassing. Sight, because we're going to look at the way in which Saul regains his sight and what that might teach us. Suffering, because we're going to look at this call of Saul to suffer greatly for Jesus' name. And then third, we're going to talk about the word surpassing, because Paul will reflect on his life and describe this suffering as giving him a kind of surpassing joy. Last week, we talked about how there comes a point at which Jesus comes for you. And tonight, we see in this story what that looks like. And there's one main idea I want to make sure you hear from me tonight. I have this kind of fear sometimes that that you'll walk out of here and you're like, I have no idea what that sermon was about. So I want to be really clear. Tonight's, Tonight's sermon is about the simple truth that there is no one like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. If I had to say it a bit more formally, I might say that this sermon text invites you and me into the surpassing value of knowing Christ. There's no one like Jesus. So let's take a look. Let's begin with sight, and particularly the way that Saul's sight is restored. I mentioned last week that Saul has to be transformed. He is struck blind when he meets Jesus because he's going to have to learn to see everything differently. He's going to have to be transformed. And this transformation for Saul involves him being brought very, very low. Look with me in verse 5. And he said, who are you, Lord? This is when the Lord Jesus encounters Saul. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you'll be told what you are to do. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight. And, by the way, he had no food or water. Now this is, this is Saul we're talking about. This is proud, mighty Saul. This is Saul, the one who is standing over Stephen's stoning giving hearty approval. This is Saul of the proud and elite party of the Pharisees, likely powerful and wealthy, highly educated. Everything's going great for Saul. And just a few chapters earlier. But here, as we saw last week, Saul is brought low. He cannot see, and proud and mighty Saul is being led by a hand. Someone's literally having to hold his hand. And then for three days, he's in the dark. He honestly has no idea what's happening. 
He's not eating. He's not drinking. The way that God tends to work is he brings people low. In his work of bringing transformation. I heard someone say one time that the Lord rarely uses a person greatly until he has broken them completely. And this is what Saul's having to experience. He's blind, his hand being held. He's not eating, he's not drinking, he's in the dark, literally. And then we meet Ananias. Now, Ananias is kind of an opposite character of Saul. If Saul is proud and, and mighty, but now having been brought low, Ananias is just an ordinary disciple of Jesus. He comes onto the scene here. He leaves the scene of Acts here, never to be heard from again. And notice, Ananias is hesitant at first. Look with me at verse 13. Jesus says to Ananias, there's a man named Saul who's going to come. And in verse 13, here's what Ananias says. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And by the way, he is here. And by the way, he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I don't know if you've ever had a moment when you felt like the Lord was leading you to do something and your first instinct is to say back to the Lord, um, sometimes I make this noise, Mm, I don't know, Lord. See, Ananias is hesitant. He's a bit fearful. But he becomes, in this small scene, willing. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Then it goes on to say, verse 17, so Ananias departed, and he entered the house, and he laid his hands on him. Saul regains his sight. Saul is able to be baptized. He's able to be strengthened, and he is now sent out into the mission to which God has called him. Ananias' faithfulness becomes a means of God's saving grace in Saul's life. I want to ask you just a couple of questions by way of application here at just this first point about sight. Here's a question for you. Reading this passage and about Saul having been brought low, I can't help but wonder, could it be the case that the Lord himself is attempting in your life in some way to bring you low?
Could it be that he desires to humble you? And then maybe here's a second question. Could it be as you go about your life that God may be calling you to be a means of grace in someone else's life that he has brought low? You know, so much of living the Christian life and so much of being used by God is simply waiting until people come to the end of themselves and being ready to then help them when they do. So in other words, in this story, if it were shown to us as a mirror tonight, perhaps we see ourselves in Saul, needing to be brought low. Or perhaps we see ourselves in Ananias' story, being called to be a means of God's grace in the life of someone else. That's sight. Now let's talk about this word, suffer or suffering. It's interesting that when Saul is met by the Lord Jesus, Saul's call, yes, is to proclaim. Verse 15, but the Lord said to him, go, for he is my chosen instrument. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So yes, he's going to go and he's going to proclaim the gospel. But listen the way in which the gospel proclamation will take place. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I don't know about you, but I'll talk about me. I do, I do. I have this tendency to assume that if I would be faithful to the Lord, whatever that looks like, then God will reward me by not allowing bad things to happen to me. I remember when I was 30 years old, in a big way, I was reminded that faithfulness to the Lord Jesus will not equate to everything going good for me. I had a dear friend say to me one time, being faithful to the Lord and that going well for you are not connected really at all. Y'all, I'm going to say this carefully, and then I'm going to try to explain it, and then I'm going to say it again. In a very real way, from this moment on, Saul's life gets worse, not better. In a certain way of thinking, it gets worse and not better. It gets harder and more costly from this moment forward. And that's because Jesus himself promised that's what would happen to Saul. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. In in the rest of the story of Acts, I'm going to hit the high points of what will happen with Saul. He'll later be called Paul from this point forward. Here's just hitting the highlights of the Acts narrative. 
He's going to go from this scene and begin teaching Jesus in the synagogues. And everybody's going to be really confused because they're going to say, okay, didn't he come here to round up Christians and kill them? Now he's proclaiming Jesus is the Christ. What happened? What happens next is those people who are confused begin to plot to kill him. So much so that his newfound friends have to lower him out of a window to escape a group of mob coming to put him to death. A couple chapters later, he's going to be stoned, meaning people are going to pick up rocks and, and throw them at him to try to injure him so badly he dies. And the people who do their darndest to hurt him think he's actually dead. So they leave him away, and he's drug outside of the city. In the chapters that follow, he'll undergo deep relational pain in his friendships because of this calling. He's going to be imprisoned in just a few chapters. He's going to be mocked publicly throughout the narrative. There's one time he's going to be shipwrecked. I've been on plenty of boats. That's not good. Listen to the way that Paul will describe the things that happened to him. He talks about how I have had, this is in 2 Corinthians, I've had greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, I'm often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. This is the classic punishment, the 39 lash punishment. It happened to him five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was, ready, adrift at sea. I was on frequent journeys. I was in danger in rivers. I was in danger from robbers. I was in danger from my own people. I was in danger from Gentiles. I was in danger in the city. I was in danger in the wilderness. I was in danger at sea and in danger from false brothers. In toil in hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from all of that, there's something worse. He goes on to say, the daily pressure that I feel for the churches. Listen to how he describes again in another place. Afflicted in every way. Perplexed, persecuted, forsaken, struck down. There's a sense in which Paul's life gets harder when he meets Jesus. There's a sense in which Paul's life gets more painful as he seeks to follow Jesus faithfully. See, because a crucified Savior 
we'll absolutely have crucified followers. So we talked about sight. We talked about this call to suffer. And now let's talk about this word, surpassing. Because listen to the way Paul describes it. This will cause me to revisit something I just read for you. He says, afflicted in every way, but not crushed. He says, perplexed, but not driven to despair. He says, persecuted, but not forsaken. He says, struck down, but not destroyed. And he says, in all of this, grace is extending to more and more people to increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. He goes on to say that this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. Listen to what he says. I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered, by the way, the loss of all things. But I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I might know him and the power of his resurrection. That I might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. Does that sound to you like the language of regret? He doesn't regret it. Listen to what he will say that helps us see why he might not regret it. This is Romans 8. For I consider the sufferings of the present time not worthy comparing to the glory that is yet to be revealed. If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also freely give to us all things? He goes on to say, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In another place, he says, it's in exact places of weakness is where I see Jesus strongest. Does that sound to you like the language of regret? So it, it does seem to me we have two options here. Either Paul is crazy. <laughs> two words, crazy. Or 
and hear me tonight. There is no one like Jesus. See, painful things, y'all, are very often the very paths by which we come to know Christ. And we come to taste what Paul describes as the surpassing value of knowing Jesus. There was an old Christian bishop, the bishop of a town called Smyrna. His name was Polycarp. And in 155 AD, he was 86 years old. A group of Roman officials came to arrest him in order to put him to death because quelling this early movement of Christians became very important kind of Roman priority. And these soldiers came to arrest him and he treated them kind. He made for them like tea. Had them sit down, asked if he could pray for them, asked if he could just simply pray before they left. He was arrested. He was brought to sort of the public place of execution. Those soldiers talked to other officials and said, hey, he's an 86-year-old man. Like, he was really nice. Like, do we really have to do this? And the officials said, fine, Polycarp. If you will curse Christ, we'll release you. And here's what Polycarp says. He says, 80 In six years, I have known him, and he has done me no wrong. To put it in other language, there is no one like Jesus. This is one of those, if you know, you know. Y'all, there's going to come a day when you and I, the Bible teaches, will see Jesus' face. The Apostle Paul says, in that moment, we will see him as he actually is. And that will be the face that you and I have looked for in all the best and worst days of our lives. And we'll see him. And regret will not be part of that experience. That is hard to believe what I just told you, but it is at the same time the truest thing in all the world. Because there's no one like Jesus. Let's pray.